0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another awesome episode of the Biff Bytes podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Me, And this week, with the CFP July exam right around the corner, we thought it would be a great opportunity to do a deep dive into the Biff Bytes archives uh, and take a look at an older episode that we recorded with the CFP board's very own John Loper. So get ready to take a peek behind the curtain to see some of the inner workings of the CFP board and how the CFP exam is put together. Hello,
1: everyone,
0: and welcome back to another great episode of the Biff Bites podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Mee, joined as always by my friends and colleagues, Mr. Brendan Flaherty and Mike Long. How are you guys doing today?
2: Good,
1: Jerry. How are you doing?
2: Doing well, Jerry. Thanks for another episode. Looking forward to John's uh, visit today. Yeah, yeah.
0: tipping tippin the cards, Mike, but we also have a fourth very special guest on today, uh, Mr. John Loper, CFP. Thanks so much for joining us today.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: Definitely, definitely. I'm, I'm really excited for today's episode. I was really looking forward to this because, um, you know, it's, it's not often that we get someone behind the scenes at the CFP board and really get to kind of pick your brain to see, you know, what happens behind the curtain.
3: Well, ho- hopefully I can uh, make it less uh, mystifying.
0: <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> the uh, behind the curtain of the Wizard of Oz, you know, all all the me- mechanisms going on behind the scenes, and you know what happens in the day to day. Before we get into that, though, John, I I really want to kind of find out about your history because looking at your your profile here on the CFP Board website, uh, you've had a pretty interesting career, kind of all over the place. You know, can you tell us how you go from a uh, a degree in science and electrical engineering and a captain in the Air Force to becoming managing director of uh, professional practice at the CFP board?
3: Sure. Um, well, like, like a lot of college students, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, but um, after I got my degree in engineering, uh, which I wasn't allowed to change the major because I was air force ROTC and it was based on air force needs, but I realized early that I wasn't an, an engineer uh, and it's while I was pursuing my MBA that I took my business classes and actually had a professor who said if you're good at if you're good with money and you're good with people you should pursue a career in financial planning and that was a a big turning point for me and when I shifted gears when I left the air force and and pursued my career in financial services
0: oh that's that's some good advice you know a lot of people have that you know one teacher one professor in their life that gave them that kind of Key little tidbit that you know sets their
1: life on a whole new path.
3: Yeah, you try to tell, tell people it's okay to change your mind. It's not the end of the world. So that was, yep. and I'm glad I did.
1: And and John, what did you do in the Air Force?
3: Um, I was a program manager for the Air Force. Um, I was the military contact um, multi-million dollar satellite communications contracts, hmm. and I was the the military lead uh, for the Air Force.
0: Okay. So a little little bit of business sprinkled in there with the uh, electrical engineering.
3: It was. Um, I didn't <laughs> understand the underlying engineering, but... Um, <laughs>
2: I so. don't know
0: how it works, but I can sell it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but
0: I could talk about it. Yeah.
2: <laughs> awesome. John, uh, John, I wanted to ask, um, w- through what avenue did you come into financial planning? Were you affiliated with an insurance company or an investment firm or... Where did you Where did you start that path?
3: Yep, uh, you know it's interesting. I was I was a, the guy that I didn't just want to be a financial planner. I literally uh, wanted to be a certified financial planner, uh, CFPs, um, and I did some research and I wanted to work for the firm that employed the largest number. And at the time, they were American Express financial advisors. Uh, today, yep. they're Ameriprise Financial, and that's that's where I spent about. 13 years uh, in my career. And John, With what them. year
1: did you actually obtain your CFP designation?
3: I got, I was certified in 2001.
0: Nice. So um, did you kind of set out and start the CFP on your own or did you get support through Ameriprise? Like how, what was the kind of timeline for that?
3: Yeah, so the it was already in the culture there. So I knew I wouldn't meet resistance uh, in wanting to pursue it. So they, their general rule of thumb is you need to get a year under your belt, you know, show some success in the business um, and then, you know, work with your, your manager, your, your branch manager to, you know, to do the study because it, it obviously it takes three years of experience anyway. And most candidates take, you know, 18 months to two years to complete the coursework and then ultimately take the exam. So waiting a year. Uh, is, a, is a good way to do it.
0: Right. Also, I'm sure building a book of business in the first year and trying to study for the CFP at the same time is a pretty
1: monumental task. Yeah, that, to do both of those. yeah
3: like most firms, they want to make sure you're going to be around before they invest that kind of money. Yeah, well,
1: especially in mm-hmm. 99, 2000, 2001, that wasn't a great time to cut your teeth in the business either.
3: <laughs> no. And now you
0: also, you've worked at a few different firms too. I'd see You also were uh, at Fidelity for a bit. Um, you know, did you kind of want to test the waters at all the different firms to see how different different uh, organizations run things?
3: Well, I left, um, the the timing of leaving Ameriprise coincided with uh, the Great Recession. Uh, so there was a, a major organizational change there. Um, and so then I spent, um, yeah, the time at, at Fidelity, I was a regional planning consultant, I was the, my certification was actually the reason I got the role. Um, Fidelity is one of the firms that has roles that require certification. And then mm-hmm. you're you become the case expert. But also in that role, I was I was coaching newer advisors, you know, telling them, hey, you don't talk politics in meetings. You never talk religion. You weren't making enough eye contact. Um, so they believe very strongly in in the personal coaching as well as the advice.
0: Yeah, definitely cuz I mean those people skills like like your professor said to you all those years ago, you know, if you're good with money and you're good with people, you should pursue financial planning. Those those people skills are can be some of the hardest skills to teach. Absolutely. I want to kind of let our listeners know a bit about you as far as, you know, kind of what what really drives you with the the CFP board. What what do you what is your favorite part about, you know, being a CFP? Is it is it the people and in interaction or you know what what gets you out of bed in the morning?
3: yeah, it's kind of a full circle moment, right? So I started wanting to be a financial advisor, but as I said, not just to be a financial advisor, I wanted to be a, a CFP. And now to work for the organization that that helps people get it, uh, you know help helping you know formulate the the curriculum. Uh, you know, I, it's funny you you bring that up. I got an email just a couple of weeks ago from an individual that I recruited. In one of my first few years in the business, so this is many, many years ago, and the email was like, "You may not even remember me, but you were um, instrumental in me getting into the business and not only that pursuing this the CFP certification so that those are the rewarding pieces of of what I do. Yeah, for sure
1: and, and John, how did you how did you arrive at the CFP board what what led to that career change?
3: so the the role that I had at fidelity. Um, was they were consolidating it in in bigger cities, and so they moved my role uh, to North Jersey and said, "Hey, you can move with your role, you can look for another role, or you can you know look for an opportunity outside the firm." And I I didn't want to leave um, Fidelity, but I also at the time you know based on our kids' ages, we weren't interested in moving to North Jersey. So um, it just so happened that there was a role open at CFP Board in the corporate relations group. Um, In the corporate relations group, I I traveled the country meeting with uh, firms that employed a lot of CFP professionals, but also met with firms that didn't uh, to try to convince them that that was an important thing to do. Um, And so that was that was kind of the turning. And it was it allowed me to. um, I, I could work from Philly and and still be based out of D.C. because I was on the road all the time.
0: Right. And I bet you know personal experience has definitely helped with that role. Like you said, you know you got the the role at Fidelity because of the CFP. You know your firsthand example of uh, you know the doors that the CFP can open. Absolutely. So before we kind of dive into all the other questions we have about the CFP board, I feel we would be remiss if we didn't address kind of the the elephant in the room that's on everyone's mind right now. Uh, just kind of the the unprecedented action of uh, pushing back the exam. I don't, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think any time in the CFP board's history, they've pushed back the exam uh, for any reason. Is this the first time it's ever happened?
3: Yeah, to the best of my knowledge, uh, this is the first time we've ever done this as an organization. Clearly, clearly unprecedented (laughs) times for sure.
0: Definitely. And I mean, kudos to the CFB board for making this decision. I'm sure it's not an easy decision to make by any means. There's so much thought that needs to go into this, but I was really impressed with kind of the the level of communication the CFP board has with all the uh, candidates. Um, you know, the most we can expect in, in times like these is, is open and clear communication. And I think the CFP board did uh did a really good job of that. Um, you know, making the announcements so,
3: so early. I appreciate that feedback. I'll make sure I share that.
0: Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, but yeah, let's let's dive into that. You know, what goes into making such a such a big decision like that?
3: So, it it probably makes sense to review what we did in March, uh, which would uh, logically make you think about the July exam. March, as as we all know, is when the, the news of the pandemic uh, really right. started to intensify. our Our testing window in March was the tenth to the seventeenth. And it was on the 17th that Prometric, our testing partner, made the announcement that they were closing all North American testing testing sites uh, on the 18th. Um, just prior to the 18th, though, we had a handful of sites that were closing in some of the hotspot areas in the U.S., uh, primarily in New York and Washington State. And so <clears throat> about 2,500 of the 2,800 who were Uh, Registered, tested, and about 150 were impacted by site closures. The difference in that number um, is we had some, the the remaining of that number contacted us proactively and said, hey, I I don't feel comfortable. I'd like to um, postpone my exam to July. So, really? Yeah. So, fortunately, we got the majority were able to test, um, you know, with the hand, and then a handful. Proactively contacted us and said, "Hey, I'm, I'm not comfortable. I'd like to postpone." Um, and then that that last group uh, were the ones that were displaced. So that obviously, as we all continue to watch the news and, and watch this develop on a daily basis, made us um, look to July. And the, uh, the three words that I've shared with candidates who've who've asked, and actually. I, one more thing I want to say about March. Um, that was a, a very emotional time because we had candidates calling us in places where they had confirmed appointments, and then they were displaced, and so they were upset. Um, I had a gentleman where in, in hotspots they were closing sites, and he was angry because we couldn't find him another spot. We had people calling us that's, that that um, they were angry that their site wasn't closed for safety. So we were hearing every angle of, of the story. And, and in all those cases, we tried to accommodate the best that we could. So as we thought about July, um, the first thing we looked at was safety. Uh, we wanna make sure that our, our candidates can test in a safe environment. Number two is access. And under access, Prometric has converted most of the sites that are open to socially distanced um, sites. And what that means is if, if a site you know, holds 20, Candidates in a socially distanced environment uh, that site now holds 10. Yeah um, so we, we couldn't guarantee the access that we normally had for the July exam and then the third piece And I think we're gonna get into more of these specifics uh, with some of the some of the questions, but we're a windowed exam um, unlike a, what's a continuous exam a continuous exam is hey, I'm ready I'm gonna call the testing center and take it. We're a windowed exam because uh, we're a high-stakes exam um, we go through a psychometric process. And if you, you can't do that if you, if you have continuous testing. There has to be a particular window. And that's one of the questions that we've been getting with the July uh, exam is, well, if I feel comfortable and I don't hold you liable, why can't I just test? Um, and, and the short answer is because, well, because of the reasons I just mentioned, but also because we have to take all candidates through the psychometric process to make sure that it, that it's fair. Um, That it's reliable, um, and you know that we're giving everyone equal access to the exam.
0: Yeah. Also, I think what's an an important distinction to make that I don't think all students will will realize is that you know ProMetric and the CFB Board are are two completely separate companies. Um, You know they they they're not the same. Um, ProMetric does testing for all sorts of exams, um, you know across all fields. So. You know, you also have to be mindful of the fact that, you know, CFP board wasn't the only ones affected by this.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So you have um, literally thousands of candidates from other organizations also looking for um, testing slots. Right. Uh, The other thing that makes our exam a little unique is the the length uh, of the exam. So it's a six hour exam with an hour break, you know, for lunch. So, our candidates take up seven hour slots. So, if you have 2,500 people taking up seven hour slots, um, you know, they have to block significant periods of time for us during those exam windows.
1: I wonder how yeah, many people definitely. are actually capable of eating in that one hour break.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I know I didn't. I, uh, <laughs> I maybe I was able to drink some water when I took the exam in my break. <laughs> uh,
3: yeah, that's bad when you. Uh, I remember on my break when I took the test too, hearing people around me discussing the exam. You know, oh, what'd you get on that one? Oh, you? And I was sitting there thinking, John,
1: when you and I took the test, we get to tell the stories of walking uphill both ways in the snow barefoot because uh, ours was a three day <laughs> test. I'm sorry, two day right. test with three parts. Uh, so, you know, we have more opportunities to listen to other people's misery. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I uh, I stayed sane because when I took the test, there was also a a dental examination going on for for <laughs> dentists. So I just hung out with all the dentists so I could, uh, <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> uh unplug from CFP world for a, for an hour.
1: <laughs> yeah, if there's any way to make the test more painful, it's doing it a room full of dental work.
0: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um. So. With uh, with rescheduling the exam, um, you know what went into kind of deciding? Obviously, it's it's availability with Prometric as well, but you know what went into deciding September versus August or October? You know, even just canceling it entirely and just going to the November exam cycle.
3: Yeah, so we wanted because we had displaced those March candidates, um, and obviously now we're displacing. You know, July or, or postponing them. We still wanted uh, there to be three windows in 2020 still wanted people to have, you know, three shots at the exam um, or three different times of the year. And so we thought that was the the best way to accommodate uh, the access that I talked about a little while ago. Um, Prometric shared with us that if we had pushed everything to November, uh, there might be issues with with access just because of the sheer numbers.
0: Right. Exactly. Um, you know, you're basically taking two exam cycles and trying to squeeze it into one. And just availability would be an issue. So yeah, that I mean, those those are the little things that um, you know most people won't think about when it when it comes to making decisions like these. So is is there like a team at the CFP Board that makes this decision? Like, is it was it a ton of meetings? Like, how how did the decision making process actually work?
3: Yeah. So I'm um, I lead the team that runs the contract or relationship with prometric so we leaned heavily on them for for the information that i'm i'm sharing with you today um you know like like any major decision that that anyone makes we looked at the pros we looked at the cons we looked at multiple contingencies it wasn't let's just push it to september it was you know what are the pros and cons of keeping the july exam Um, so we reviewed all of those, uh, review, we reviewed the contingency plan with the executive team, and then we, we also ran it by um, our board of directors and said, hey, this is, this is what we're thinking. So it was, um, and we, we intentionally uh, made that announcement, you know, uh, a few weeks before we made the decision to say, hey, we're, we're, we're behind the scenes, we're taking this seriously. And if you read the communication, we said very clearly that our first preference was not to, to move it. Uh, but that our priori- priority remains uh, safety, and so that—that was, that was the decision-making process.
0: Yeah, and I think I think that's really the the decision you have to make. You know, it's it's the hard decision to make, but it it is the right one. You know, you, you really just have to prioritize safety above all else. Yeah. Um, I think what might also be helpful for our listeners is what I've tend to notice is people's concept of organization size is directly related to their own organization size you know if you work at a large firm you think every other firm is large and if you work at a small firm you think every other small firm is small and in, in terms to like their responses and how they organize things what what how would you kind of describe the CFP board you know organization are we talking you know thousands and thousands of people like busy beehive or is it a more you know tight knit organization as far as um, you know getting things done
3: Oh yeah we're a small organization we have uh, about eighty uh, individuals uh, at in Washington and we're you know very efficient we we're we like to say that we're a volunteer run organization we have many councils uh, thank brendan for his his time uh, with us and the council on education so we have various councils um, to make sure that we are you know we're hearing the opinions and the feedback of our stakeholders um but yeah, we're we're a tight knit, um, efficient, efficiently run organization, um, and obviously at eighty employees, we're pretty small. Yeah, and definitely.
1: What, what I think is interesting is I think a lot of people think that the CFP board is this black box, and it's it's very difficult <laughs> to like talk to people. But when you when you call, it's one of the few places that you call people actually pick the phone up and follow through on what they say they're going to do. And it's you know most yeah. most everyone that I've dealt with there has, has been very. Um, uh, you know, very collegiate, you know, just, just nice, decent people.
3: Yeah. And, and in fact, you know, a culture of, of service, of, of stakeholder yep. service. Um, as you can imagine, I, I got a fair number of phone calls and emails from candidates about the July uh, exam decision. I, I would say 90% have been uh, supportive and understanding uh, those 10% though, are the ones that usually make it to my desk. Um, yeah. And I, I find that the best way to handle those is a phone call. Yeah. You know, people, uh, people just want to be heard. People want to get things off their chest. Um, and you know, they usually feel better once they get it off their chest with me. And, and so, yeah, as, as Brendan said, we make those, those personal outreaches, um, and, and people always are just so appreciative, um, of that extra effort
1: and i think it may make sense to actually step back just a bit and and talk about what your actual role is so so as director of professional practice you're kind of at the crossroads of three of the four e's that that uh, the cfp board deals with
3: yeah so just as a reminder the four e's of certification are um, education the exam the experience and then the fourth one is ethics and so professional practice at cfp board excuse me is uh, the first three. So education, so that's the, the education programs, uh, both baccalaureate and certificate programs that offer the, the required CFP education. Uh, the second is the exam, which we just finished uh, talking a little bit about. Um, that's the relationship with Prometric, both um, the administration of the exam, uh, but also uh, my team leads the exam development work as well with our volunteers. Uh, Third one is experience Um, And that's you know, we review the submissions uh, for experience to make sure people are in line with that definition Um, my team's also in charge of um, continuing education Um, and in this context obviously continuing education is for existing CFP professionals and then we also have a contact center in the in professional practice where we answer the inbound phone calls um, from both candidates and CFP certificates um, ask questions, clarifications, you know, about whether it's certification, CE, uh, an announcement they read on our website. Um, we, we take anywhere between, uh, two to 300 calls uh, a day. Wow. wow. That's more than I
0: thought. Yeah. I didn't realize that's a lot. So how many, um, so you said that the organization's about 80 people, how many people would you say are, are fielding phone calls on a day-to-day basis? Um,
3: we have six. Professionals answering the phones uh, and a contact center manager. So if it gets really busy, he'll take calls Uh, and then obviously um, some of those calls get um, transferred depending on you know what the inquiry is, but I would say the majority get handled by them.
0: Yeah, I, I have noticed that because I, I tend to call in a bit, you know, whenever students are having issues, I'll I'll hop on a line and with the student and we'll call in together. And I have noticed the same names uh, uh, popping up from time to time. I thought I was just getting lucky, but uh, I guess I guess I, I'm uh, getting to know the full team there. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, hopefully they helped you uh, solve your issue, whatever it was.
0: Yeah, definitely. Definitely. <laughs> So, um, your role was was actually uh, recently created, uh, at least according to the uh, the bio here. That I feel is something you know the needs of the CFP board are are changing constantly, and it looks like your role was kind of developed to to meet those needs. What what kind of went into that decision? Do you know?
3: Well, um, one of the things that was important to Kevin, our CEO, uh, he he liked the fact that I am certified. Um, I speak the language. I went through the process. So having someone you know, lead that the certification branch of the organization who's certified, I think kind of went into that. It's not that um, obviously that these things weren't managed in the past. it's they were just managed differently. the The individual who was in the role prior to me also had HR, had uh, communications. so so those pieces were spun off um, to other individuals. and my role is is more exclusively as as Brendan said, on those three e's. Mm-hmm.
0: No, no, uh, ethics though. They wanted to keep the ethics part of it separate. Maybe oh yeah. No.
3: <laughs> so the, the fourth E the ethics, um, that's the background check, uh, that's done by our professional standards organization. So a team of attorneys, uh, does a background check, broker check Westlaw, uh, to make sure that, um, everybody's got, you know, clean background to move forward with certification. So that's done by the legal team.
0: I feel that for a lot of students that could be a very, um, You know, nerve wracking. They've gone through everything, and they're at the the final finish line. And I get so many calls and emails like, "Hey, I got this uh this parking ticket in 1986. Do you think this is gonna, (laughs) you know, affect my designation?" Like, no, it's okay. It's okay.
1: (laughs) And it's one (laughs) of the things as a as a practitioner that it's it's great because it's you know the CFP board is very protective of the brand, and they want to make sure that the high standard is maintained, and they work diligently to make sure that that happens.
3: Yes, yes, and in fact, I had a, a personal friend. Call me and say hey john i've got this in my background that just happened in the past year You know they keep asking me about it and you know as with anything You know the the key and once again, I don't, i'm don't, i not in that department, but it, The key is the disclosure you just want to make sure that it's out there um, You know, I, th- I think you know sometimes certificates get in trouble When it's out there they knew about it and they didn't tell us about it. That's mm. yeah, so I think being truthful and getting it out there is an important first step.
0: Yeah. Cause I mean, we're all human. We're all make mistakes. What's important is that we're open and honest about it. You know, it, it looks far worse trying to cover something up than it is to just, you know, admit, Hey, I made a mistake. I learned from my mistake. You know, here's how I'm going to be better in the future. Yep, yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Well, John, we have a, a list of questions here that are basically our most asked questions uh, from students about the CFP Board. Um, so I want to kind of dive into these, see if we can uh, shed some light on them. Uh, you know, coming straight from the source, because you know, with a lot of these, we we can make our our guesses from the outside, uh, but it'd be nice to know kind of a, a more uh, internal look at things. And I know you probably there are some of these you're probably not going to be able to answer, but you know, whatever you can give us, we'd appreciate.
3: Okay, I'll give it a try.
0: <laughs> all right. So this first one is by far and away the most common question I think all of us get. You know, if I had a nickel every time a student asked me, "What's the passing score on the CFP exam?" Um, you know, I could retire by now. <laughs> um, so, like, what? How? How is this exam graded? You know, how? How does it actually work out?
3: So every five years, uh, we go through a comprehensive uh, practice analysis. Uh, and in fact, we're going through that now in in 2020. Um, and the practice analysis surveys uh, existing certified financial planners you know all over the country around the the different tasks that they do. Is it important, and how often do you do it? and uh, what are the the question that I'm answering right now before I answer your question is which is the most common question I get is how do you determine what's on the exam and mm-hmm. so it's it's this background research. That Certified financial planners tell us, you know, what do they do day to day? Um, and at the end of this research and we put together what ultimately become the Currently our 72 principal knowledge topics uh, We bring together subject matter experts uh, We bring them to Washington and we we go through um, the psychometrics um, standard setting exercise called modified Angoff. Uh, and the modified Angoff method is When you literally go item by item in a sample certified financial planner, um, exam, and you, you ask the volunteers, what would a, um, proficient CFP, and we define that for the volunteers, um, what percentage of them or candidates, I should say, not CFPs, what percentage of them should get this particular question correct? and so you literally go item by item obviously the harder questions um, the group you know generally recommends a lower percentage will get it correct the easier questions um, they'll suggest a higher percentage will get it correct and at the end of all of that science uh a proposed cut score is recommended and so that cut score obviously i can't disclose what that is um is based on a proficient candidate getting those percentages correct and I don't, I don't know if I'm answering your question but I'm trying to answer it the best I can.
2: John, at, John what, at what experience level is that a someone early in their uh, career or is it pegged three years in five years in uh, as they determine what percentage would would get this right is, is there any such standard?
3: Yeah absolutely because you would certainly expect someone with greater years of experience, um, to get a larger percentage, correct. Um, yeah. So that's based on uh, the average age, you know, in their, in their thirties with, uh, and once again, this is defined later in the process, you know, generally, you know, three to five years of experience in the business, which also makes sense because that's our experience requirement. So yes, that, that proficient candidate, um, does have a, a definition. Absolutely. Okay.
0: And, you know, I, I feel you guys are kind of in a difficult situation because, you know, you want students to know, you know, that these are, these questions are graded, you know, with a, a very, you know, high degree of, of professionalism and, and uh, accuracy, but you also, you can't really give people an answer key when the test is over. So you guys kind of compromise with the, uh, the high, medium and low grades um you know that that i feel also you guys recently changed where you switched to a um it's almost like a sliding scale from green to red on you know how well you did in each section can you speak a little bit about you know that and how that came about
3: yeah so we constantly get feedback on the score report um and we ha- we have to walk the tightrope of giving candidates feedback but at the same time you're right we can't we can't give you an answer key uh, we can't show you uh, the the questions compromises the integrity, but but we still want candidates to have the feedback so that they know where to concentrate their efforts in potential future attempts at the exam. Um, so we're you know we're we're constantly getting feedback on that, trying to make it better. Uh, but we will never give specific scores or or ever you know show individuals specific questions.
0: Right there's, I mean, when you have an exam like this that's so so high stakes, you really want to start worrying about people kind of trying to game the system if you if you release too much information.
3: Absolutely, and we're we're always worried about um what we call item item is the psychometric term for questions. So item exposure, you know, um, we, we even don't want to have our test window much longer than seven days, uh, because psychometric experts will say that candidates who take our test at the end of the window potentially could have an advantage uh, simply by talking to candidates who took it earlier in the window.
0: Right. Now, we, we've uh, used that term a few times. I realize we haven't really defined it for our listeners yet. Can you can you talk about psychometric and just kind of what that means and how it plays into the exam?
3: Yeah. So the psychometrics really is are the statistics um, or the whole psychometric process of of how specific exam questions perform, how cutoff, how the cutoff is, is measured. So all of the statistics behind the exam. And it's also why it takes us four to six weeks to post final exam results, because we literally look after the exam is over, and it's why you get a preliminary score, is we look at every single question to see how it performed. So if a, if a question has been used in previous exams and um, We may eliminate it simply because it's been used in too many exams. It may be performing just fine. It may be uh, Performing fairly uh, But we've used it a number of times Uh, The other example i've shared with candidates who've asked me this as well is if we have a particular question that let's say um, The majority of candidates get it wrong um, If the majority of candidates are getting it wrong Then that tells us that there's probably something wrong with the question Um, and so we review all of that in the psychometric process uh, before we you know, say that, ex- that results are final.
0: Yeah, and that, that results in the, uh, the once in a blue moon. Uh, we'll have a student who gets the, the Hail Mary. You know, they got a preliminary fail, but then when the official results come out, they got switched to a pass.
3: Yeah, those those are fun. I I've made those phone calls. Those are fun. Calls. Yeah. What's also fun is is I've I've had a couple of candidates who come in and tell me that they've
1: had the preliminary pass, and I said, you know, I've noticed a lot that they've they've changed those to, to fails ultimately uh, this year. So,
0: oh no, you know, look on their
1: faces.
0: <laughs> uh, that's evil, Brandon. <laughs> Has has that ever I've never had a student who had a preliminary pass get, get get switched to a fail. Has has that ever happened before, John?
3: We we try not to penalize, um I, I can't share the specifics of preliminary pass, yeah, okay, fails, yeah. but I we try not to penalize uh candidates for answering the original question correctly, if that makes sense. Yeah.
0: Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Um, so this next question, John, it kind of, it, it takes me back to elementary school, you know, asking my teacher, why do I need to memorize my multiplication tables when I have a calculator? But <laughs> a question we get all the time from students is why does the CFP board test all this long math and formulas when most advisors rely on, you know, financial
3: planning software these days that do all the hard math for them? When you say long math, are you talking about the calculator questions?
0: Yeah, I guess, yeah, the financial calculator, it, it comes up in a couple different areas with students, you know, they'll get frustrated with the financial calculator, they'll get frustrated with, uh, you know, some of the formulas, um, you know, it, it it's typically with with uh, students who have been financial advisors for a long time, where, you know, they they wonder why do they have to, you know, do it the hard way when they don't do it the hard way in their actual everyday practice.
3: Yeah, so... It's funny you bring this up because in the in the practice analysis work that we're doing this year, we we had a long conversation about it, and um, it was interesting to hear uh, existing CFP professionals say, "Hey, you know, they still think it's important. You know, they're still in yeah. they still financial advisors who, you know, when they sit with their client at the conference table, they pull out their uh, their calculator and they do time value of money calculations, or or people who are on the road and do house calls, they bring in their calculator." You can't always have your your computer sitting there. So, the the answer to the question would be: as, as long as CFP professionals tell us it's important, um, and and it, it plays out in our practice analysis, uh, then that that quote long math as you describe it will continue to be on the test. Yeah,
0: and that's that's what I'll tell students when they ask me these questions: is you know I'll tell them you know hey any financial advisor can pull up you know eMoney or Money guide Pro or any of these other software and you know type in some data uh and generate a financial report but it's a cfp who will actually be able to tell you you know how this works and why it works and why it's important
3: yeah or the analogy would be uh, if i want to be a cpa um, why would i have to know how to fill out a a 1040 if the computer does it right right you know it's 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 important to to know the under underlying uh, elements
2: is there any distinction um when when you interview the practicing cfp professionals Time value of money, uh, those kind of calculations a- absolutely um, you know I'm glad I know how to do that, but what about calculating uh, with the investment formulas you know actually calculating standard deviation or beta or or really any of the formulas that's that's where I think the the software you know folks just look at that number on their computer every day, but uh, do you get feedback from cfp CFP professionals that? they they use it to calculate those those type of ratios and and formulas
3: um you know some but but you're right i think that those that feedback changes as the as the profession changes and as i as i already mentioned um, we're a volunteer driven organization so the the actual questions that candidates take on our exam are not written by us they're written by practicing certified financial planner professionals. So um, so I think as the, as the profession changes, the industry changes, if there's, if there's less of that, um, then that will be reflected in, in future questions. Or
2: even more conceptual uh, questions yeah. for those rather than, than just the math. You know, what, what is standard deviation and how's it used? Why is it beneficial to know? Um, it, it seems like there are more questions like that um, these days.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you, I'm sure you've heard too, because I've heard candidates tell me, you know, what, what did I need all those formulas for? I didn't end up using any of them on the test. So um, yeah, I think sometimes they're a distraction for sure. I'm not saying they're not important. I'm just saying that. Yeah,
1: sure. From, yeah. from, a, yeah. from an education standpoint, I mean, I think it's important to be able to, you know, ultimately, you need to be able to interpret, even if you don't have to know how to calculate the, the standard deviation, you have to be able to interpret it. And I think you, you have a much better shot of, effectively interpreting these things if you understand what goes into them
3: right
0: yeah yeah i mean i I was just putting together a lesson on uh covariance and you know that's really what i harped on is like listen the here's the formula but more important than the formula itself is the concept of covariance and what it actually means and how we use it you know that is what's really the lesson i want you to be taking from this Mm -hmm. um so another question students uh, will ask us a lot is, you know, why is uh, a bachelor's degree, specifically, you know, any bachelor's degree, um, a requirement for the CFP exam? You know, like why does someone with a degree in oceanography, a better candidate than someone with, you know, 30 years as an F.A., but no bachelor's degree?
3: Yeah. So when the decision was made by the board uh, several years ago, you know, they, they, there was this, this discussion was happening behind the scenes. And ultimately, the board decided that um, they thought that it would elevate mm-hmm. the certification by having that minimum requirement. Not a minimum, re- not a minimum requirement in a specific background. So, for example, my bachelor's degree in electrical engineering um, may not be such a great fit, but it would have it would have excluded me if I had to have a, a business bachelor's degree. So, um, I, I think the, the greatest reason. Was that it elevates the certification um, from others that don't require it?
0: I also appreciate that, John, because my uh, bachelor's degree in uh, jazz guitar would also have excluded me. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah, and I,
3: you know, um, we get I get this question a lot. You know, why if if I don't have a bachelor's degree but I have thirty years as a financial advisor, um, why would you not want me as a certified financial planner? And my answer is I, I do want you as a certified financial planner um, and I'm not negating the years of experience or minimizing them. Uh, but, but the organization made the decision that that was a, a, a minimum barrier to entry as part of our education requirement. And, and we haven't, we haven't budged from that.
0: So up next, this is one of Mike and I's favorite uh, new kind of, releases from the CFP board is these new key element documents the CFP board has been coming out with. Uh we know oh, a- I
2: love them. <laughs> keep them coming. They're just fantastic. You, you know, from the tax cuts and jobs act and the secure act, but even even the roadmap for the for yeah. the standards, they're just fantastic Great. documents. So please keep them coming.
3: Great.
0: Nice. is this this kind of like a new trend the CFP board is starting down it feels like the CFP board's kind of being more open releasing more information like this which is, which is great was this kind of like a conscious decision yeah we
3: want to um, we want to be as clear and as transparent as possible um, Most recently the uh, key elements for the Secure Act um, there's there's specific language in there that you know where if, if the act was not clear from the federal government, Uh, We state very clearly that that won't be tested until until Washington clarifies what they mean by specific parts of it Um, Yeah, so we're not we're not trying to be um, Unclear or ambiguous uh, And I will certainly pass on, you know the key elements as it relates to the standards um, There was that that was such a big change uh, that we felt it was it was really important to really clarify the specific pieces and what we meant by them. Yeah,
0: definitely. Keep them coming. Mike and I have been doing uh, a little mini video series where we, we go through the documents together and we just kind of spitball our thoughts as we're looking through the documents and record them for, uh, for our students to listen to so they can kind of get some insight into, you know, what we think is is most important and what we really want to kind of highlight in those documents. So they're, they're great. Uh, a big change for the CFP exam that happened a few years ago was the switch from testing, um, you know, the topics independently over the two-day time frame to doing just one big exam. Um, you know, do, do you feel there are kind of pros and cons for each, or do you feel you know switching to one big exam is, is really the the best way to test this type of material? Are you
3: talking about when we switch to a um, comprehensive yeah. exam, or are you talking about? When... Yep,
0: exactly. Going going to the comprehensive exam. Yeah.
3: So when we are uh, one of the few financial services designations uh, that's accredited. We're accredited by NCCA, and part of the we would not be able to be accredited if we had had maintained just the independent topics and and tests. So once again, this is a, a move to elevate the the, the uh-huh. credential.
0: Yeah, I never do that. That's that's really interesting because yeah, the students ask that all the time. Where you know they'll be frustrated where they'll say. You know, if I could just take this as six separate exams for each topic and just cram for those topics, I could, I could ace this exam, but doing it all at once is so difficult.
3: Well, and, and what makes it um, difficult in the, in the comprehensive, as you, as we all know, is that you can't easily separate them, right? There's, there are so many pieces that talk to the other pieces, right? You need to understand the taxation of education planning, right? Or the taxation of retirement planning. And so the comprehensive nature of the exam allows us to ask those questions and test multiple topics as opposed to those separate tests.
1: And John, you know, the last meeting that we had together, um, I found it interesting. The I don't think a lot of people realize that the the designation is accredited and, and also how proud the CFP board is of that accreditation. Do you want to talk more a little bit
3: about what the accreditation means? Yeah, so the accreditation... Um, it's, it's really having a a third party review our entire process. So we, we've been spending some time talking about the psychometric process. They ask us specific questions about that. They ask us, um, are, are, do you have representation from different levels of experience? Um, you know, how many are male, how many are female are, you know, different business models represented. And so, all of that allows for our exam and our certification process there's there's three components that are important to the certification it allows the exam to be valid it allows it to be reliable and it allows it to be legally defensible and and the valid piece we've already been talking about and and the valid is are are we actually testing things that financial planners do and the way we know that is is through this Practice analysis process that we've been talking about when we survey people and we know that this is what they do because they tell us It's it's what they do the reliable part and it's really amazingly reliable and what that means is two equally prepared candidates who take our test in um, March uh, will get the same score Um, And and it's extremely reliable. It's also why um, candidates that the pass rate for subsequent takes is lower uh, because, you know, if, if candidates don't make significant changes to their readiness, their likelihood of passing in multiple attempts um, you know, stays stays the same.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yep. And then the last one
3: is legally defensible. Um, if we're ever questioned, occasionally, occasionally we are, about the exam's fairness um, or, you know, stereotype bias or fill in the blank, Um, We can lean on our accreditation and say, well, we've had our processes reviewed by a third party. We are accredited um, and we feel very comfortable uh, with the way that we administer the exam. John,
2: I have a question about, um, related to this, Um, students, and I've seen this over the the years, probably more from students who don't pass the first time, but um, they'll say the exam was so subjective and and I'm not sure that I personally ever felt that that way that I always thought there was probably something in in three of those four answer choices that disqualified it um, but what's your reaction to that do you think there is a high degree of of subjectiveness in this exam or you know just could you
3: speak to that a little oh, bit Oh absolutely in fact uh, there's a specific question that was on my test when I took it that i think answers this question well and that is that you know there there is a fact pattern for the smiths and husband and wife with a with a son that was going to go to college and I, it, the specifics of the question aren't important except that it says which of the following edge for the smiths giving what you know about them in the fact pattern here which of the one which of the following educational planning uh, instruments is the most tax efficient so when I hear somebody say that that it was subjective, well, all four answers are appropriate uh, education planning tools or instruments, but the, that's not the question. The question is which one is most tax efficient for their fact pattern? And so it, that's what makes the test hard too, is not only do you have to know about each one of them in, the, in that particular question, that answer, but you also have to know how each is taxed. Um, you know, based on the fact pattern of that particular client. So, when I hear subjective, to me that tells me somebody that needs um, to look a little closer at each, as you said, of each of the answers and what might exclude it.
1: You know, what's what's also interesting about that is if you if you asked a dozen people whether that was a, an education question or a tax question, you know, you're probably going to be split evenly down the middle. So people's interpretation of what types of question they're seeing may not line up with what the CFP board says is likely to be on the exam. But, you know, again, it's, it's about their interpretation of what they're reading. Exactly.
2: Yeah, sure. And that, I think, was what caused some students to come away from an exam saying it was all tax. Yeah. It was all about income tax. And and yet I think a good many of those questions were probably tagged for insurance or retirement um, in that pool of questions, uh, not in the 12% that is pure income tax, what I call 1040 testing. Right,
3: right. And the example I just gave you would most likely be uh, tagged an education planning question. Yeah. Right. Uh-huh. That
0: kind yes. of feeds into this next question here. I don't know if you're going to be able to answer it, John, but I'm going to, I'm going to shoot my shot. <laughs> um, <laughs> does the exam stay true to the published allocation of questions, you know, such as 12% or estate, 17% of retirement planning, or are those just kind of
3: general guidelines? Uh, the answer to that is it does. Uh, and that's part of, um, once again, the practice analysis, um, the the feedback we get uh, on, which is, which are most important. Um and so the, the exam always holds true to those percentages.
0: just gotcha. So always, wow. Okay. I, nice. That's,
3: that's part of the, of the valid, reliable, legally defensible. Yeah. Right. Right. All
0: right. Yep. I'm going to, I'm going to, since that, since that one went so easily, I'm going to take another shot. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, now I get this old wives tale told to me by students all the time. And I, I never have a, a straight answer just because I myself don't know, but kind of a a persistent old wives tale with the CFP exam is that different test days have different difficulty of tests that if you take, you know,
1: and and specifically the July test is the hardest (laughs) one. Yeah.
0: July test is the hardest. And then, you know, taking it at the beginning of the cycle is harder or taking it at the end of the cycle is harder. And I hear it both ways from all sorts of students. So that has led me to believe that it's just their imagination since they can't come to a consistency with it, (laughs) but maybe you can shed some light on it from, uh, from
3: the inside. Uh, The answer to that question is absolutely not. um, You know, the, the, whether you, and whether uh, the old wives tale that I heard when I took the test is that you, you want to, you want to take it in, um, in March because the CPAs are all busy doing tax. Yep. Yeah. About that. Yep. That's why the July test is yeah, so hard. I
0: heard July, test, July, test is, July test is so hard because all the CPAs are, are out of tax season and taking the exam. So take it in March when they're all working on tax. I think <laughs> the
1: July test is so hard because the weather
3: is so nice. It, yeah, that's you know, true. <laughs> obviously I can't share the statistics <laughs> in this setting, but I, the the exam is remarkably consistent. Um, and you can, you can tell that even if you look and we publish these on our website um, at how how tight the range is of past passing percentages. Um, if there were significant variations in difficulty, um, then you would see our pass rate fluctuate significantly. True.
0: Yeah, it is. It is remarkably consistent. If you, cause the CFP board's great about publishing the historical cool. pass rates and it's, it's a very consistent uh, pass rate, you know, going back years and years and years, yeah. you know, it pretty tightly holds to about that, that 65% pass rate. Yeah, no, it does. Uh, it's very, very reliable. And and that's something that the CFP board, you know, aims for, right? You know, the CFP board wants to have about a 65% pass rate with the exam.
3: Um, we don't, no, we don't aim for a particular pass rate. Um, it's it's based on oh, okay. the, the minimally competent professional that we talked about earlier. If, if a higher percentage of minimally competent candidates uh, answer questions correctly, you'll see the pass rate go up.
0: Yeah, So it's really more, you know, the 65% pass rate is more of a kind of uh, symptom of the, of the situation rather than like an actual goal
3: of it. Yeah. We're not, that's the other myth that we're behind the scenes pulling levers. Um, Mm -hmm. We're we're not.
2: Yeah. It'll really come down to the questions that were selected and, and then those evaluations that they go through with the, with the panel. Um, I don't know if you just add all those up or, or what, but it really depends on what was drawn. Does it not, John?
3: Are you you talking about the questions on the test?
2: Yeah, I was just uh, as far as compiling that cut cutline st- uh, score there's there's no way you would you would have that ahead of time with that modified Angoff uh, method oh, right. it really depends on that cycle Absolutely. what what yep. questions were
3: picked Absolutely
0: that's kind of the dangers of uh, you know on our end of things, looking at uh, the results and trying to reverse engineer it. You kind of you come to that that you know because even I I just right there assumes that it was uh, you know a goal, but it's not it's not a goal at all. It's just that's just kind of the way it the shakes out. Ball, yeah,
3: yeah, that, that's how the chips fall. And you know if um, it, it, it just the the percentage of highly prepared or, or maybe less prepared candidates um, stays. Pretty consistent is another way of of looking at it. If if we had the most prepared candidates over the three administrations on an annual basis, you know, all take the test in July, then we'd see the July, you know, pass rate go up. Definitely, yeah. I think the the hardest
2: discussions um, are when the student has scored all medium, and and yet didn't pass. Right. Uh, and they're always saying, well, what do I have to get in each of these? Will one low score result in a fail? It, you know, they're they they're constantly asking about that.
3: Yeah. And and it's it's hard to make conclusions from that. Um, but mm-hmm. if 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 it's all you know, the feedback I'd give to a student that has all mediums, it it sounds like there's a, a lot of additional preparation that needs to go in across, you know, all of the domains. The, the harder conversation is when when people have several highs and a couple lows, um, and then they don't pass.
2: Yes. So
0: last question I have here has to do with uh, challenge status. Um, you know, how come the CFP board allows people to, to challenge the exam by just taking, you know, the capstone and then going to the exam? And, and how do you decide, you know, which designations or, you know, Professions allows students to challenge. You know, how did you come up with that list?
3: Um, as I've explained over the years, when I get that question, is some of the challenge designations make a lot of sense um, because the core education required for that particular designation, like the CHFC CLU, uh, are very similar. Um, but then there are other designations that that don't have that core curriculum, and and some of those were made at, at a board level. So it, it's you know. It, at some point in, the, in our past, our board decided that CPAs and CFAs, um, that it would, it would be prudent for us to allow those individuals to, to challenge the exam. Um, so, you know, people try to, to ask us that question and say, well, what you know, if, I, if I just have a CPA, I don't have all that other background. Well, the CPA doesn't um, perfectly fit into having that specific educational background. Uh, But history has shown us that CPAs typically do well on the test Um, And so some of them make sense from an educational background and then and some of them were Decided at a board level that it would make sense for our organization uh, to allow, you know certain designations to challenge so The ones that aren't listed there uh, and I get this question all the time too Could it potentially be a future challenge and the answer is yes. Uh, Once again, that would have to go to the board uh, for debate uh, and decision.
0: Awesome. And then finally, John, what's, what's one thing you want our listeners to know about the CFP board? You know, what's something that people seem to always get wrong that you just, you want, you really want to let people know about the, uh, the
3: organization. Well, yeah, I think the biggest aha for me as someone who was a practicing CFP for many years before I joined the organization is what is I think, um, Brendan said earlier this you know, black box um, we are volunteer run those questions that you're taking um, on the exam were written by peers um, our discipline and ethics commission is a jury of one's peers uh, we are a volunteer run organization and we're not um, yeah we're not this secret organization um, making secret decisions Uh, We try to be as transparent as we can with the exam, you know, without sacrificing the integrity, as we've talked about with these questions. But the biggest thing I want your listeners to take away is that certified financial planner professionals are behind most of the decisions that we make. And, uh, you know, I certainly would put it out there that when you become a CFP professional, we certainly would welcome um, you volunteering and and giving back to our organization. As Brendan knows, we're always looking for, for help
0: oh you know that's that's a great uh point you know how how would someone kind of get involved with that if, you know they wanted to be a question writer they wanted to, to help out with the board you know what's the best way for them to get uh you know involved
3: yeah there's a section on our website uh to express interest as a volunteer um and on the on the website too it, it lists all the different volunteer organizations uh and then those are depending on what the individual checks off his or her interests um those are routed to the to the appropriate staff member at CFP board.
1: And, and awesome. it's, it's something that we encourage our students to do and, and would, would voice that again here today. If, if you're interested in becoming a CFP professional, go register yourself on the website, get yourself a student account, get known and on file with the CFP board and begin to immerse yourself into the organization that you're trying to be a part of.
0: Awesome, well Brendan, Mike, uh, do you guys have any other questions before we wrap up here?
2: think that's no, it. I just really appreciate yeah, John's, John's time and time. insight today. Um, certainly gave me greater insight into a number of things I've been getting asked for years. So I'm, I'm happy to know a better answer now. <laughs>
3: yeah, yeah, definitely.
2: Really appreciate you coming on today,
3: John. Yeah, you're right. In the absence of information, people make stuff up, right? So I, I really, <laughs> I appreciate uh, the work that you all are doing. And um, I, I appreciate uh, being able to share some time with you today.
0: Yeah, definitely. We'll be on again sometime soon. Uh, you know, talk about some
3: more stuff. Uh, this has been great. Thanks for having me.
0: Definitely. Well, thanks for tuning in, everyone. Uh, hope you enjoyed today's episode. And remember, you can always check our back episodes as well as our videos and articles and all the other fun stuff that we come out with. Uh, you can find that all at biffbytes.com. See you all
2: again soon. Thank you. Be
0: well, thanks guys. Thanks so much.